Good morning, Keystone. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to 1 John chapter 2. That's where we're going to be in this morning. Just the first couple verses this morning in that chapter is what we'll tackle. Uh, This week was uh, a big week in the Kaufman household. We officially made the jump into minivan life. Uh, I don't know if that's something for me to be embarrassed about or brag about. Uh, But we've been looking for a minivan for just over a month Uh, And I have to confess, I don't enjoy the car buying process. I know that some people really do. Uh, I don't, in part because I have no idea what I'm doing when it comes to cars. And so I have no idea if I'm getting a good deal or if I'm getting ripped off. Uh, And part, I found that part of my goal as we went to look at vans was just to appear like I know what I'm doing. Uh, so I kind of had this routine, and maybe you're familiar with it from when you've looked at cars, but I'd, I'd start by kind of walking all the way around the vehicle uh, and think, well, it's painted the same color, check. Uh, I, I'd look, then I'd get down on the ground, and I'd look underneath and, and make sure there's no rust anywhere, and it has a muffler, check. Then sit inside the van in the front seat and, and realize the, the armrest works and, and there's a steering wheel there, okay, check. And then, of course, you have to pop the hood and look under there, and there, there's an engine in there. All right, check. And, and I just I found myself, like the, the salesman probably could have told us, uh, this van has a 3.5-liter uh, V6 engine with a 10-speed transmission, and, and we would be thinking, okay, but does it have heated seats? Does it have heated seats? Um, we, we go into this process, whether we know a lot about buying cars or a little, I think everyone asking the question, am I getting a good deal? Am I getting a good deal? Or am I getting ripped off? That it shapes the car buying process. And part of the benefit of something like a Kelly Blue Book that's plastered over all the car websites is to assure someone like me who knows nothing about cars, yeah, you're getting a good deal. You're getting a good deal. Because we all ask that question, am I getting a good deal or not? When it comes to our lives with God, I think we all ask the question throughout our lives, is God really on my side? Is he really for me? Is he really out for my best interests, for my good? Does he really care for me and love me? And not just one moment, but day after day after day. Or are there certain days where he's for me and then certain days where he's against me? Is God really on my side? And I think sometimes we have this sneaking suspicion that maybe he's not. That maybe he's not for us. That maybe he's not on our side. That maybe even he's angry at us. And John 2, 1 through 2, in some ways is like a Kelly Blue Book written to us to assure us God really is on our side forever in Christ. And why that matters in part is because a joy-filled life leans confidently on God's favor. A joy-filled life is assured that God really is for us and on our side. And so let's read in 1 John 2, 1 through 2. Uh, I'll pray for us first, and then we'll pick up in those couple verses this morning. Father, we come before you as sinners in need of mercy. 
and as worshipers wanting to fix our eyes on you. Fix our eyes on what you've done for us. Fix our eyes on what you're really like. And to be blown away. And to simply fall at our knees and say, God, you are awesome. God, when we open up your word and read it, we are hearing from the most important person in the universe, you. The one whose opinion is only ultimately what matters. The one whose word is only ultimately what matters. And so we come asking, speak to us this morning through your word, by your spirit. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. John 2, starting in verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 2.1 is an echo of 1 John 1.4. The, the verse that in some ways is shaping how we're approaching this letter that John wrote 2,000 years ago. 1 John 1.4, we've said it a lot already, but John says this in that verse. We are writing these things so that our, both yours and my, joy may be complete or full. That that's the first purpose statement we come across in John's letter. There are other ones like what we read then in 1 John 2.1, where John says, we, my little children, I am writing these things, hear the echo, to you so that you may not sin. So John has a goal of writing this letter to Christians that our joy may be full and a goal of writing this letter to Christians so that we might fight sin, not sin, sinless. And these goals are not two opposite goals or two random goals, but they are connected hand in hand, going together side by side. It, it would be like if I was out on the driveway with my son and one moment I told him, hey, I want you to really enjoy driving your big wheels around our driveway. And then several moments later, I told him, hey, you need to stay back from the road and don't go anywhere close to the road with your big wheels. For him to enjoy driving the big wheels means to stay back from the road. And so John would write us in the same way and say, for us to have fullness of joy means to fight against sin in our lives, to see sin for what it is. And we might stop and ask, okay, well, what does that have to do with the truth that living a joy-filled life means being confident in God's favor for us? Because ultimately sin lies to us, or Satan lies to us, we could say. And the lie of sin goes a little bit like this. God is not really on our side. That, that's the lie both before sin, enticing us to sin, and the lie that comes in after sin. It goes a little bit like this with the lie before sin. 
that God is against our happiness. That that's the lie over and over and over Satan tries to get us to believe, to buy into sin. That, that God is against our happiness and that if we really want to be happy, then we should indulge in this. That Satan tempts us by saying, God doesn't really care about what will make you happy. That's why he wants to keep you from this. And if you really want to be happy, then you should disobey God and indulge in this. And we could say, isn't that the lie behind sin from the very start of history? Isn't that the exact same lie that Satan whispered to Eve in the garden? when he told her these words, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Right, the lie says God can't be trusted. He isn't really for you. In fact, he's keeping you back from what's good. And so you need to look for joy and happiness apart from him, outside of him. And it's a lie we continue to tell or be told today. Marshall Siegel has a a quote that he, he puts it this way. Many people think following Jesus means surrendering our happiness. That you can either enjoy a fun, passionate, and exciting life for a short time or live a bland, boring, but safe life forever with God. That lie is a quiet but violent concentration camp fencing men and women in, keeping them away from God and torturing them with lesser pleasures that only lead to a swift and yet never-ending death. Sin does offer a temporary happiness. It offers us a short high. It offers us a cheap joy. But it will never give us fullness of joy. Sin is like a get-rich-quick scheme that makes all sorts of promises but fails to keep them and just leaves us poorer in the end. But holiness, obedience to Christ, becoming more and more like him is like an investment into our joy that may be challenging in the moment to obey God, but ultimately pays dividends in the long run. Sin seeks to rob us of joy. And so that's John would, why John would write and say, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. See through the lie that God is against your happiness. And then the lie that comes after sin is what we talked about last week in some ways. That when we do fall for it and we do sin, then Satan immediately whispers, God is now against you. God is now against you. Because you've turned your back on God, he's turned his back on you. It's, it's the lie that bounces around in our minds and says, you've really done it this time. It's the lie that infects our hearts and says, you've gone too far. God is really angry with you now. Sin once committed always seeks to farther separate us from God. And convince us that he wants nothing to do with us. Which is why John sandwiches this verse or this part. We're writing these things to you so that you may not sin with promises on both sides. Like we saw last week in 1 John 1.9. 1, 
if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then on the other side of these words, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, which we'll look at in a moment. We're, we're called as followers of Christ to look through sin in order to see its true colors. To look through sin and see its true colors. That that's part of what it means for us to live by faith. Whereas before we look at sin and we see something that would make us happy or we think would make us happy, now as followers of Christ, we're called to look at sin and see something that ultimately seeks to make us miserable. That whereas before Christ, we might look at sin and see it as a good thing that God is trying to keep from us, now we're called to look at sin through the eyes of faith and see it as a wretched poison that God is trying to keep us from. We live by faith, believing God really is for us, that he really is for our joy. And so we look at sin and say, though it may look good, it leads to misery. That, that in some ways we look at sin, picture sin, like a Venus flytrap. Have you ever seen a Venus flytrap before? This is what it looks like if you're looking down on it. It looks beautiful. It looks enticing. It looks nice. And yet, if you see a bug land in a Venus flytrap, what does it do? It immediately closes on that bug and traps it in there. We're called to look at sin as Christians and say, that looks good. That sounds good. That seems enticing. But it will only lead to misery in the long run. This is why John can write and say, my little children, we are writing these things. I'm writing scripture so that you may not sin. And this is part of why John wants us to be so confident in God's favor, so confident that he really is on our side. Because the more confident we are in that, the better we will be, the more power we will have to say no to sin and yes to obeying God because we really believe he is for us and on our side. And so that's why John goes on in these two verses to give us proofs that God is forever on our side. First, a proof from the past and then a proof from the present. He actually gives them an opposite order of that, but that's how we're going to look at it. Look at first the proof from the past that he gives us, that God really is on our side, that Jesus died to secure God's favor forever. Look at verse 2. John tells us in this verse, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. That short verse has been the subject of all sorts of discussion for Christians. In part because lots of people would say we shouldn't use the word propitiation in there. That we should use a different word. Because that word propitiation essentially means the removal of anger and the replacement with favor because of some sacrifice because of something that was done. 
And so we might say, okay, use propitiation in a sentence, or use it in a paragraph. And here's, here's how we might better grasp that word. When LeBron James left the Cleveland Cavaliers in 2010, he became the object of their wrath. Jerseys got burned, death threats got sent. But when LeBron James returned in 2014 and then won a championship, he forever propitiated the Cleveland fan base. That he went from being an object of their anger to an object of their favor and delight forever. Some people would say, we shouldn't use this word, propitiation, in reference to God, because it makes God the Father seem like an angry, mean old ogre who God the Son, Jesus, has to come along and appease. But that misses how this word is used in the Bible, as we'll see. And it also devalues what Christ did on the cross when we fail to use this word and understand it well, which leaves us then with less confidence that God really is for us. Because what this word tells us is that Jesus' work on the cross turned the tide for us forever. That what he did, what he accomplished on the cross forever turned the tide for us. Without Jesus' death on the cross, God is opposed to us because of our sin. His just anger remains on our sin. And so without Jesus' death on the cross, God is against us in some measure. And to believe that God is forever on our side, apart from what Jesus did on the cross, is a dangerous and deadly delusion. It it would be almost as if I would decide I'm going to drive head-on or straight-on into head-on traffic and just assume that all the other cars will swerve out of my way. That's a dangerous and deadly delusion if I believe that. And to believe that God is pleased with us apart from what Jesus did on the cross is a dangerous and deadly delusion, even more so than driving head-on into traffic. But Jesus' work on the cross forever deals with God's anger for our sin and forever secures his favor for us. And this means that just as, just as apart from Jesus' work on the cross, it's a delusion for us to believe God is pleased with us, because of Jesus' work on the cross, it's a delusion for us to believe that God is angry with us now. Let's say that again. That just as apart from Jesus' work on the cross and our faith in that, it's a delusion to believe that God is pleased with us. If our faith is in Christ and what he did on the cross, it's a delusion for us to think now that God is angry at us or against us or opposed to us in some sense. To say and believe that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins is to say that all all that was needed to secure God's favor forever was accomplished on the cross. The, The cross, in some ways, is like our property deed to God's favor. 
when you, when you buy a house or you buy a piece of land, one of the first things that you will get is a property deed with your name on it, signaling that this is now yours. Yours to live there, yours to enjoy, yours to have. And if someday someone would come along knocking at your door and say, you have no right to be here. You have no right to enjoy this house. You have no right to live here. All you would need to do is walk back, pick up that property deed, pull it out, show them, and say, yes, I do, because my name is on this deed. The cross is like our property deed to God's favor. That if anyone, including ourselves, would say to us, you have no right to believe that God is pleased with you. No right to think he really loves you and cares for you. No right to believe that he actually smiles on you and delights in you. Then all we have to do is pull out the cross and say, yes, I do. I am in some sense entitled to God's favor now, not because I have bought it, but because he bought me at the cross. I am his and he is mine forevermore. Jesus turns the tide for us forever. And the cross also reveals God's heart for all of humanity, for the whole world. This is the wrong thing about saying that propitiation means that God is the mean ogre father who Jesus has to come along and die on the cross to appease. God is not a God who has a heart of stone and needs to be buttered up by his son. God has a heart that beats for sinners to know him and enjoy him forever. It's why John says in this verse, he, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. To which we immediately ask when we read a verse like that, or should ask, well, does that mean that God saves everyone? That Jesus' death saves everyone, the whole world? To which we would say, no, that, that's universalism. And that denies the need for people to repent and trust in Christ to be saved. That denies a verse like Romans 10.9, where Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Not all will be saved. Only those who repent and trust in Christ will be saved. And we have to be so clear on that. But this verse in John 2.1 also lines up with the famous verse, John 3.16, where it says, for God so loved the whole world, the whole world, that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. We, we find in these verses, I think, this truth. Jesus' death is sufficient to turn the tide for anyone in history. Jesus' death is sufficient. It's all it's needed to save anyone in history. But it's only effective for those who are called and put their trust in Christ and repent of sin. Sufficient to save anyone, but only effective for those who repent and trust in Christ. Now, let me point out two things with this. 
First, I think this should be encouraging to those who know Christ because it shows us that God's favor is utterly sufficient and abounds, that his grace and favor is not a bank account that one day runs out, is not a river that one day runs dry, is not a sunset that one day disappears, that his favor on you and me in Christ will never be put on hold, never be taken away, never be removed. It's sufficient. But this verse should also challenge those who know Christ because it tells us we have the message that the entire world needs to hear. We have the message that the entire world needs to hear. That Christ's work on the cross really is sufficient to save anyone. But the only way it saves people is if they hear that message and repent and believe. That, that as Christians, we've, we've been let in on a secret that God really does love the world and gave his son up to save us. And then we find out that was never meant to be a secret. And it's meant to be a message that's for the whole world that we're called to proclaim. Which is why Paul later in Romans 10 says this, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Jesus' past work forever secures God's favor. And it's those who trust in him, repent, believe in him, that ultimately get to enjoy that favor. Now, here, here's another just takeaway from this point that might be important for us. We should look backwards to see God's favor secured. I think there's a tendency to look right in front of us at whatever our circumstances are right now in order to answer that question, is God really for me? Is he on my side? What's happening in my life right now? Is he for me? What's happening right now? Or to look just a little bit ahead and say, if God does this thing, then I'll know. That will be proof that he's on my side. If he answers my prayers for a spouse or a child or a job or health, then I'll know he's on my side. If he gives me whatever my heart desires right now, then I'll know he's on my side. If he takes away the thing that's causing me pain and hurt, then I'll know he's on my side. If he makes the road smooth in front of me, then I'll know he's on my side. In a thousand ways, we say, if God does this, that will be the proof that he's for me. And the cross calls us to instead look backwards and see God's favor forever secured and then to live confidently out of that in whatever we're facing right in front of us. The cross calls us to look in the rearview mirror and see God really is on my side forever because of what Jesus did. And then to face whatever's right in front of me with that confidence. Here's how Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher from the 20th century, put it. Whatever may be awaiting us in the future, if we are right with God, it will not finally matter. It will not have a devastating effect upon us. 
if we are right at the center with God, we can look to the future and say, come what may, all will be well with my soul. The more sure, the more confident we are that God really is on our side, the better we'll be able to handle whatever's right in front of us. The more confident we are in his favor, the better we'll be able to handle both success and difficulty in our lives. Because we'll believe he's for us in the midst of both of those things. And because this is so important, John isn't content to simply have us look backwards at the cross and see what Jesus did in the past. But to look even right now in the present upwards and see what's happening in heaven in this moment as we speak. Because here's the proof of the present that John offers us. Jesus is, lives to advocate for us now. Jesus lives to advocate for us now. I, I believe sometimes, maybe I'll just speak for myself here and see if this is true for you too. Sometimes we focus so much on what Jesus did in the past at the cross. That he lived, died, and was raised for us. Or we focus so much on the future. Jesus returning again to make all things new. That we forget Jesus is at work right now for you and me. Jesus is not tucked away at some all-inclusive resort in heaven. Awaiting the email from his father that says, okay, it's time to go back and return to earth and make all things new. He is working moment by moment by moment by moment for me and you, advocating on our behalf right now, right this instant. That Jesus is currently acting on our behalf. Hebrews 7.25 and Romans 8.34 tell us that he's interceding for us right now, praying for us, to which we should stop and think. Jesus prays for you. If your faith is in Christ, your name is on Jesus' prayer list. Your picture is on his refrigerator. Like the, the thing that we pray the most for right now, whatever that is in your life, the thing that you immediately ask other people to pray for, Jesus is praying for you in that area as well. Think about the encouragement that could give us. Like the, the ability to be a more patient parent. Jesus is praying that for you right now. The confidence, the boldness to proclaim the gospel to a friend or a family member or a coworker. Jesus is praying that for you right now. The desire to be healed. Jesus is praying for you in that area. Not that Jesus' prayers always line up exactly with ours or that he prays to the same end because his prayers are only always perfect because he knows what's best for us. But what an encouragement it could be for us to know, even as we pray, we don't always even know what to pray for or we pray with sinful desires and how encouraging it could be to say, Jesus, I know that you pray perfect prayers for me. And so I'll rest in that even as I continue to pray in perfect prayers. I, I don't know that there's a better picture to convince us that Jesus cares about every single detail in our lives than to see that he is praying for us right now, moment by moment. Moment by moment. 
But notice, John doesn't say here that Jesus is praying for us, although that's part of what he's currently doing. John says he's advocating for us. What, what does an advocate do? Acts on behalf of someone else. To do what, then we might ask? Act on behalf of someone else to do what? To accomplish their best interests. It's why when we talk about Jesus as an advocate, often it's been compared to the idea of a lawyer and his or her clients. That a lawyer is duty-bound to act in the best interest of his or her clients. And that to say Jesus is our advocate is to say in some sense he is our heavenly lawyer who acts in our best interest right now. But this word's a little bit more personal, I think, than a lawyer and a client relationship. And maybe another way to think about it would be to think about a coach in sports. If you grew up playing sports, I would guess you had a favorite coach from that time. Mine was my seventh and eighth grade basketball coach, Mr. Mayo. Mr. Mayo took an interest in our lives, both on and off the court. We knew that he cared for us. He laughed with us. He had fun with us, but he also pushed us. When we were on the court, he was willing to argue for us, go to bat for us if we got a bad call, but he was also willing to challenge us and call us out if we did something wrong. We always knew Mr. Mayo was out for our best interest, out for us to be able to succeed on the court, that he wanted what was best for us. Maybe you had a coach like that. That's what it means to say that Jesus is our advocate. That right now, he is out for our best interest. That, that right now, he cares about our lives, every detail of them. That right now, when we fall down, he's the one who picks us back up. When we wonder, he's the one who pulls us back in. That moment by moment, he is working in our favor, in our best interest. And this is the beauty of having Jesus as our advocate. He only always perfectly acts for our best interest, even in the moments where we don't feel like it is. And here's the other side of saying Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is currently ensuring God's favor for us. Jesus is moment by moment hitting refresh on our salvation. Not because he dies again or needs to die again, but because he continually, moment by moment, applies the benefits of what his death achieved for us. That each moment, right now, he's saying before the Father, what I did on the cross is sufficient for you to forever be pleased with them. Right, right now, I, I have this ritual when I get home from work, most days, where I'll, I'll sit down with my son and I'll ask him how his day went. Uh, and he's three and a half years old, and so it's fascinating to hear his response to that because it could be all sorts of different things. But sometimes he'll share with me uh, some way that he was disobedient throughout the day, some way he disobeyed. And what's interesting is he'll almost always immediately follow that up then with this phrase. We took care of it. We took care of it. What, what does he mean by that? Mommy and I already took care of this. Daddy, you don't have to worry about it. You, you can continue to sit with me and laugh with me and play with me because we took care of it, right? Jesus stands before the Father right now, moment by moment, 
saying, Father, we took care of it. We took care of it. Do you see these nail holes in my hands? We took care of it. Do you see this wound in my side? We took care of it. Do you see this video of me saying it is finished? We took care of it. And so they are forever the beneficiaries of your favor because we took care of it. And this means that God looks at us through Jesus. That to see us, he always looks through Jesus first to see us. God looks at you and I in Christ with rose-colored lenses. Not because he doesn't know everything about us, because he looks through his own son first to see us and then sees his son in us. And so is forever pleased with us. See, we should look upwards to see God's favor sustained. When answering the question, does God still love me? Is he still on my side? Is he still for me? Is he smiling at me? We're tempted to immediately look inwards and ask, how have I been doing? Have I been managing my sin well recently? Have I done my spiritual disciplines this week? Have I been a good parent? Have I been a good follower of Christ? And and all those things are important, don't hear me wrong, but God's favor for us is never sustained because we've met whatever checklist we've set for ourselves. His favor is always sustained because moment by moment by moment, Jesus advocates for us and tells the Father, we took care of it. And so Jesus would tell us, I think, look up, look up and see me advocating for you and find joy. In the midst of life's discouragements and difficulties, look up and see me advocating for you. In the midst of the pain and hurt and disappointments of life, look up and see me advocating for you. In the midst of feeling weighed down by your sin, look up and see me advocating for you. When you're unsure if God really is pleased with you and delights in you, look up and see me advocating for you and know for certain that God really is forever on your. We pray the words that sometimes we sing in the song before the throne, that though Satan tempts us day after day to despair and tells us of guilt within, we look up and we see Jesus there who made an end to all our sin. And we know that because a sinless seer died, we are counted free because you're now satisfied. God, we believe that you look on him and pardon us, not just in the past, but right now as he stands before you. And so we join in singing, hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise the one risen son of God. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.